This episode is brought to you today by a new sponsor for us, uh, ToneThisPhone.com. Don't let your phone go naked. Dress your phone in a stunning case at ToneThisPhone.com. Shop a wide range of hot cases from heavy duty to waterproof, playful to elegant. Grab an exclusive 30% off code of 34U, that's 304U, again, 34U, and find yours at Tone.com, or ToneThisPhone.com, rather. Sorry, buddy. Uh, additional discounts uh, for those of you who tag your case on Instagram. So they'll hook you up with some more discounts if you take a photograph of your case and then put that case on your phone and then post it on Instagram. <laughs> I'm interested in their battery charger power back thing because my battery is constantly shooting the bed on my fucking iPhone. They have like this weird little video handle mount LED light set up for podcasting or for live streaming with your phone, which looked pretty rad. They also have this micro fisheye uh, telephoto lens for their iPhone. Um, so a lot of really cool stuff here, man. And I'm really excited to have them as a sponsor. So do me a favor, even if you just go over and check their stuff out, go to ToneThisPhone.com. That's ToneThisPhone.com. I'm your host, Mike Petchy, and on this episode, I'm going to try something a little different. Uh, I'm actually going to get into some of the things that help inspire me, some of the things that help uh, get the creative juices going when I'm looking to either come up with an idea, write a script, or work on some characters. Uh, bear with me today, because uh, this week has been miserable here in Boston. The humidity has been through the roof. Um, and I just can't bring myself to shut the window, so it may sound like I'm recording this from Jurassic Park because of all the birds outside, um, but you're going to have to deal with it because I'm already sweating. <laughs> I've been told over and over again that I need to find myself a hobby, something that exists outside of my business something that I can use to clear my mind, and something that hopefully makes me happy. Over the years, I've come to realize that I am most happy in one place, the kitchen. I'm sure that this all starts from my childhood, or stems from my childhood somehow. I've always heard stories about how my dad would drag my high chair over to the stove while he was cooking. He would feed me all these samples of these strange and delicious concoctions that he was working on. I mean, my dad was always a fantastic cook at the house. Both my parents were, actually. Uh, my mom was a really great cook. My mom being Irish, surprisingly, she did really good meatballs and pasta, which was funny. And my dad being Italian, well, he kind of went off the rails on the weekends. Um, and me being one of four in the family, I think I was the only one that had an adventurous side when it comes to eating. And my dad always loved to take advantage of that. So uh, from a young age, I was eating like calamari, squidding pasta, you know, uh, yeah, head cheese, all sorts of weird stuff that uh, has stuck with me since. And the kitchen has always been the center of my home, my house, and my parents' home. It's where we all go for nourishment, and at oftentimes, it's the source of excitement and happiness for the family in general. Uh, I always loved how people gather around the person that is cooking. Uh, it's like somehow the sounds and the smells have this amazing ability to draw out personal stories. Think about it. How often have you crowded around a barbecue and started talking about your dating situation? I mean... 
how often do you crowd around the, like a, a meal and talk about like your recent vacations, the things that you want to uh, exceed at in life? You know, it's funny how food brings out good conversation. The kitchen has always been a magical place for storytellers, and it makes sense that my hobby would eventually find its way back into my work. Over the past few years, I have directed documentaries and short films on people who love to live in kitchens. At first, I was obsessed with capturing the food. The lighting and the shooting of these delicious creations had to be perfect. Then I became obsessed with technique, the tools and the routines that chefs use to constantly give birth to deliciousness. But these days, it's different for me. It's about something new. It's about the association of memories to flavors. It's about the ambience, and it's about the mood. For me, these days, it's about using food to pull out great stories. Now, certain foods are triggers to me, like keys to old memories. Like, do you guys have the same thing? Um, for instance, let's talk about lobster, right? So for me growing up, lobster was this special occasion, and I usually only ever got it on my birthday. Um, and we... Uh, we're fortunate enough as young kids to actually be able to have a place on the Cape, Cape Cod here in Massachusetts, where we would go for the summer. Um, so my parents would just sort of save up. We wouldn't do any other vacations. We wouldn't do Disney. We wouldn't do any of that stuff. We would save up all year just to go be on the beach for about two months a year, which was fucking fantastic. Um, <clears throat> and my birthday is coming up, actually. So wish me a happy birthday. Uh, my birthday is uh, July 17th, and this year is the big 4-0 for me, which is kind of crazy. Um, but back to lobster. When I was younger, I would only get it on the 17th of July. And uh, we would all pile into the old station wagon. So there was four of us in the family. I mean, four of us as far as siblings are concerned, and then my parents, obviously. And we'd cram into the old station wagon, uh, and some of us had to sit in the way back of the station wagon, which had like this really shitty, schlocky window that would go down. Um, so it was always hot as hell back there. Um, and we would drive for at least an hour further down Cape to this place. What the hell was it called? It was called, uh, oh, it was called Thompson's Clam Bar, which was the ultimate in like seafood tourist trap shit. Um, but we would always go in there, and my parents somehow would reserve the same sort of, the same table every time, uh, which was like at the window. They'd open up these large windows and sit at the dock. And I remember just sort of sitting there watching the seagulls fly in and steal french fries off of people's plates. And I would wait for this special moment where like this giant red boiled bug essentially would be placed on the table in front of me, and I'd attack that son of a bitch with these little claws. Um, what do they call those things? Knuckle crackers. Um, I loved it. And uh, it was more than just the flavor of the food. I mean, if you've had lobster before, you know. It's a very specific flavor. It's kind of sweet. Um, and then most of the time, you're just sort of lathering it up in melted butter. Um, but for me, the actual association with lobster was that moment, was remembering what it was like to be one of four um, kids in this family and, and what our summers were like. So every time I sit down and I see a lobster or if I taste a lobster, it immediately transports me back to being about 13 to 15 years old, which is such a powerful thing when you think about it. The fact that just seeing a lobster, just seeing it on the plate, never mind tasting it, reminds me of that blue station wagon, reminds me of that faux leather 
that you would fall asleep curled up on when you went for the ride home because you were so stuffed with the lobster, you know? Um, it's so crazy to me how food does that, how food is, it's almost like, it's like a time machine. Instantly, when you taste it, you go back in time. Uh, another good example of this is actually <laughs> is actually roast beef and gravy. Okay, so bear with me, guys. Um, <clears throat> roast beef and gravy for me was something that my dad always made during the holidays. So it was always attached to Christmas, mostly Christmas, maybe Thanksgiving kind of thing. But he would he would do like a giant roast. And then he would spend a lot of time doing a fantastic gravy, which was the best part of the whole thing, which I think usually was like a red wine base with the drippings for the roast, a little bit of garlic, a little bit of rosemary, a little bit of thyme, that kind of vibe. Oh, so goddamn good. Um, and every time that I have it now, if I ever have it, it always brings me back to those family situations. It brings me back to that when we would eat in that one room that uh, we were never allowed to go in unless it was a holiday. So my parents had a dining room that she always would keep the, my mom would keep the kids out of. Um, <clears throat> and then part of the roast beef dinner was that as a young kid, about same age, you know, 13 or 15, I was allowed to sit with the adults. Now I was the oldest of the kids in my family. And this time of year, my mom would send most of the kids downstairs. All the young ones would get downstairs. They'd eat first, but they would go hang out at the TV room, play with their toys from Christmas, all that. But I had the option of sitting at the adults' table, which was like a big thing at that time because you're being welcomed into grown-up conversation. You know, and it, your your parents, or at least my parents, would had decided at that at that point that I was old enough to be able to hear some of the real conversations that adults had. You know, people talking about marriage problems, people talking about growing old, people talking about getting sick, people talking about um, some of their crazy adventures that they had when they were younger. I mean, one of the more surprising elements for me with that was hearing some of the stories from my grandparents because when you're younger. Your grandparents are always sort of these very perfect individuals, or at least for me they were. They were, very, they were very perfect. They were always loving. They were always there for you. They never did anything wrong. Uh, and, and by God, you had to listen to everything they say because if you, if you ever talked back to your grandparents, you, you were fucked. <laughs> and there are multiple times where I tested that theory. Um, but the... Uh, the ability to actually sit down and listen to some of these stories. And I remember specifically my grandfather talking about stuff. Um, and he wasn't talking to me. He was just sort of talking to the table, which was twice as interesting because I didn't feel like he was tailoring it to a young person. I felt like I was an adult. I felt like I was sitting there with him. Uh, and he would talk about his jobs. And one of his jobs, and I may screw this up a bit, but one of his jobs was that he was a manager on the floor of the biggest post office here in Boston. Like he used to run shipping out of the post office and he would talk about all of these uh, people that worked underneath him and at the time you know at the time it was you know probably the 50s something like that I'm terrible with numbers but I think it was probably the 50s and and he would have uh, uh, all sorts of people from all sorts of different backgrounds working underneath him um, and he would talk about these adventures he would go on uh, and then he'd also uh, in order to be able to uh, sustain the family, he also had to work at night. So he would work as a taxi cab driver in Boston at night, which 
blew my mind. The fact that my grandfather was a taxi cab driver. I never, I think, I don't even remember when he ever worked. I think he, as, as far back as I remember, he always seemed like he was retired. I'm sure he had a job. I can't remember what it was. So to hear that he drove taxi cabs blew my mind. It was such a crazy thing. And he would talk about what it was like to pick people up at that time period and how dangerous it was in Boston, you know, and how people uh, would hold up cab drivers at gunpoint and they would rob cab drivers, um, how he really got to know the city. Something so cool about being a cab driver is that you knew every inch of the city, you know, and... Back in those days, our city, well, the city of Boston, seemed a bit more dangerous. I mean, it wasn't as dangerous as New York, but you still had spots like the combat zone. You still had uh, really sort of dangerous neighborhoods. Um, I just remember him sitting there telling me for hours what it was like to be a cab driver. It's such an interesting memory, specific to roast beef and gravy, you know? And if I'm sitting here thinking about it, make such a great movie about that. I could do such or even not even a good movie. Just take some of these elements from him and put it into a character. It's really cool stuff. Really, really rad stuff. Um, God damn, it's interesting. <laughs> I hope you guys are just as interested about it as I am. <laughs> mm. Here's another funny thing about um, bear with me as I chew on ice like an asshole because it's so hot. It's another thing about roast beef and gravy is that I, ha- I have, a lot of you who have been listening to the show know that uh, about five years ago I had had a head injury um, and I had slipped on an ice when I was ice skating and ended up in the hospital with a hematoma and I was in uh, intensive care for about five days and then I went through about five months of recovery. And there was a period of time there where the doctors were sort of very concerned whether or not I'd live. Um, and so you sort of approach that end of the your end of your life thing and you assess your life and you've heard that story before. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that once I recovered, once I got out of the, the intensive care and once I got out of the hospital, I ended up going to stay with my parents for a while, uh, which was really nice. And the first meal I wanted was roast beef and gravy. Now, I'm sure there's probably a medical reason for that. I'm sure I didn't have enough iron in my diet with all the bleeding and I was craving some sort of red meat. Um, But part of me feels like because of the head injury, my body and my brain were craving that memory cycle. Like they they were craving, they wanted me to remember all these elements so I wouldn't forget them. Is that weird? It is kind of weird, but it kind of feels that way, you know? Strange shit, man. Really strange shit. Uh, so stick with me, because I hope this still works, but, and I'm drinking water. Sorry, guys, it's so hot. Uh, okay, so another great food for me is, uh, goldfish. Like, not the actual goldfish, but like those goldfish crackers. You know what I'm talking about. I think it's usually like a Pepperidge Farm kind of thing. Um, but they're these salty little fish crackers. Everybody knows what they are. Mike, come on, stupid. Uh, so growing up with these little snacks, they were always associated with comfort to me. I would often eat them when I was sick, usually paired with the simplest chicken broth and tortellini soup. Like that combination to this day still comforts me. Um, but they were also one of the many snacks that we would have as kids during movie night. Now, movie night was a big deal at our house. 
um, because my parents were pretty restrictive on how much television and how much video game stuff we could actually watch and do. Like they would, they would really force us to go outside most of the time. You know, the summer times when we went to the Cape, we didn't have a TV on the Cape. So that was like two, two and a half months with zero option for television. So on the Cape, we were usually reading books. We'd have like family reading time or we were kicked out of the house. So I had a BMX bike and I was kicking around and causing trouble, causing a lot of trouble in the neighborhood, but having sort of outside adventures. Um, and, you know, you would get envious. I would get envious every once in a while of my friends that had, you know, Super Nintendo and Nintendo, and they would talk about video games. But uh, I hate to admit it, but in the long run, you know, the parents were right. The parents were right. It was better that I was outside. It was better that I was having human contact. I use a lot of those skills that I learned at that time period every day. Um, so, uh, but anyway, back to movie night. So, so uh, Goldfish were one of the snacks that we would have for movie night. And movie night was usually like a Friday night. So we would all get out of school. We'd come home. My parents had uh, refurbished the basement in their small house. um, And they put like large sectional couches down there. And my mom went and bought a big TV. And this time of the year, it was always great because the basement would be cooler because you're underground. Um, It uh, it was just a a place to escape from the heat because we never had AC. We never really had central AC. So everybody would want to be down in the basement. And Friday, my mom would usually pick us up from school. Um, or once we all got home from the bus, we'd jump in the car and she'd take me over to the video store. Now, a lot of you young y- listeners out there haven't had a video store experience. And I don't mean Blockbuster. Blockbuster really fucking ruined video stores. Blockbuster was like... <sighs> Blockbuster was the fucking reason why it all died. Because they would... They would charge you for late fees. You'd get these stacks of like late charges and you didn't rewind the, v- the VHS tape charges and you would have like this huge balance on your account. I remember it was the coolest day in the world when Best Buy went out of business because I had like a fucking $90 balance in my account that just disappeared. And that was from bullshit stuff. Like I didn't return the tape on time or I didn't rewind the tape. They fucking killed the industry. But before them... Uh, they were like little hometown, privately run video stores. And I had one that I used to go to that I loved, and I cannot remember, was it Video Stop? I can't remember the name of it, which sucks. Um, but it was this tiny little place, and you'd walk in, and I swear that the building was falling apart because the do- like the actual doorways were crooked and uneven, and the floors themselves were creaky and uneven as you're walking in. And this guy had crammed in shelves and shelves of VHS tapes. Um, And I remember walking in, and one of the coolest parts to me were the movie posters. He would find any place that he could slap up these movie posters, usually in between shelves or along the ceiling. And he'd walk in there, and I'd look around at all these worlds that I had had no idea what they were about. You know, and this this is back when movies were magical to me. You know, I didn't... Behind the scenes stuff really didn't exist for for the average viewer, so I didn't know how movies were made. You know, I never really thought about it. And I hope there are still a lot of listeners out there that don't. I hope that, you know, you can't, you, you, you have to know that they're made one way or another. But for me, I never even thought about it. I would just look at that television set and go, that's, somehow I'm in a whole nother world. Somehow I'm hanging out 
with uh, Chewbacca on a spaceship. Like somehow that that happens. And I don't care. I don't even want to think about how it happens. I'm having such a good fucking time with it. Um, and a big part of that for me was also with movie posters. So you'd walk in and you'd see these worlds. I remember the movie poster for Chud. Remember Chud? Chud was like this weird horror movie about these little green gremlins. And there was really <laughs> creepy poster of this little bald green gremlin with these sharp, sharp teeth like coming out of a toy. Beneath the city of New York are living catacombs. An endless maze of subterranean tunnels, unfit for anything human. Unauthorized for anything experimental. Hold it! There's something moving up ahead at the top! And unlikely to bring anyone down there. So... <laughs> they're coming up. Chud. Remember that poster fucked me up more than the movie did. You know, there was a, there were late late nights that I was using the bathroom, just sort of looking out at that toilet, waiting for one of those green things to chew my ass. <laughs> um, but uh, I was always really impressed with movie posters, and my mother would never let us get horror because we were too young. You know, horror wasn't a thing for us. I'd usually go into the video store and have to go with my sisters over to the Disney section and fucking once again get Lady in the Tramp and watch that for the like. 30th fucking time but my mother would also let me pick something out um and she was a big fan of action <laughs> and she was a big fan of violence at the time um and so he would i would grab things like die hard off the shelf you know my name but who are you just another american who saw too many movies as a child another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's john wayne rambo Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. Or like Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones was a repeat rental. That movie, like the first one, and actually the first and the second one were repeat rentals all the time. Um, so I, I, I loved it. I loved the video store. It was such a magical place. And you would walk up to that counter, and you, as, you, as you get older, you'd walk up to that counter, and you'd lay down Indiana Jones again, and there'd be this guy... Who was sitting there glued to a television set that had bad tracking problems and he looked down at the counter and go oh indiana jones again huh how about you get this and he'd slide blade runner across the counter um, and that's how i was introduced to movies like that was through that uh, experience through a guy sitting there watching a bad a bad tracking television going wait a minute watch this you know and the, it made the viewing experience so much more interesting to me uh, it's such a weird vibe now where we are stuck like on algorithms. Uh, it's I miss video stores. And maybe it's me being nostalgic. Maybe it's because that's how I experienced a lot of these things. And I'm sure that there are young folks today that are like, you know, I would never have found this genre if it wasn't for Netflix. But I just miss the option of having to physically go get something. Like, you knew that when you drove over there in the car that if you pick something, you couldn't come back. So you would spend the time to find something that was really fantastic. And if you got something that wasn't that good, you'd still watch the whole goddamn thing because you had to go and get it and then come back with it. So there were a lot of movies that I love uh, that sucked when I, when, they, when I was younger, but I liked them because I liked the experience of sitting down and watching a movie. Um, so 
weird how all this comes back just because of goldfish, right? So goldfish were one of those large bowls of snacks that we would sit around and I would pound down. I would like eat a whole bowl myself while while watching like Harrison Ford slide down the back of a prop plane, uh, irritated that he had to fight a muscle guy, you know? <laughs> uh, so whenever I see goldfish, I think about that. But they also have, it's funny how food has uh, different stages of memories, if that makes any sense. So like, my first memory with goldfish sort of takes me back to that, but I have another memory that is more recent. Um, one of the things that uh, I'm sure you guys have heard me talk about, whether you're listening to this podcast or you're following me on Instagram, I like to go on what I call bar safaris. So years ago, when I started directing, um, we would get hired to travel to direct. So we would be uh, flying out to Los Angeles uh, we'd be flying out to New York. We'd be flying all over the place. And uh, my assistant at the time, Tony, Tony Fernandez, uh, his first job was that when we traveled, he would have to do some research. He would have to find the shittiest bar in that city for us to go to. And he'd also have to find some of the coolest places. Um, and so he'd make a list for us. After we do our long day of shooting, uh, we'd go on these adventures. And one of the first adventures that we went on, actually, was uh, after I had, uh, I, I used to do a series of uh, Grindhouse movies, um, and I had made a DVD about it, uh, and we were selling these DVDs, and I was going around to different conventions selling that stuff, and I had asked her, and I said, look, hey, do you want to be with me at this convention? I can't pay you, but I can tell you this. Every DVD that we sell, every ounce of profit that we make, I will blow on the ultimate bar safari in New York City. So the two of us hustled hard. It was like three days of uh, three days of sales. We were pulling everybody over to the table, selling t-shirts, selling hoodies, selling DVDs. Uh, and we ended up, what was our tally? Our tally was like four grand. Like we made four grand. And I stood by my word. Uh, a couple weeks later, I ended up getting us a hotel in the Lower East Side. And uh, Tony and I start the beginning of a three-day bar safari. Uh, and we, I had never really sort of investigated the Lower East Side. And this was probably like eight years ago. You know what I mean? So it was kind of when it was starting to become a little hipster. Um, and the cool thing about, you know, the cool thing about hipster stuff is that however you feel about the lifestyle, at least they make great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> at least you know the food's going to be fantastic. At least you know they're experimenting with stuff. So I was super excited to sort of dive in deep and discover the city through its bars and through its restaurants. Um, and so we found all sorts of places. I don't know if you guys have been to, I think it still exists, the Blind Barber, which is a speakeasy in the lower, I think it's like East Village. It's on the edge of Lower East Side and East Village. Um, and we found that place accidentally while walking down uh, residential street arguing about some sort of movie shit and uh, walked by this barbershop that had dark windows and two candles in it and there was uh, a very like quiet beat like a hip-hop beat coming out of it and I just looked at Tony and I said that's not a barbershop and we just walked through and opened the back door and it turned out to be the speakeasy super rad and we just had experience after experience with that that was our first night. Our second night, we ended up hooking up with uh, Ara, who was in uh, 12 Camp. And this was before we had done 12 Camp. 
And we were in the city and he was living in the city as an actor. And he's like, I hear you guys going on a bar safari. I'd love to join you. Sure. So he catches up with us and we're, we're sitting in some basement bar, which is the thing I love about New York is that they cram, <laughs> they cram so many beautiful places in like basements and annex, wherever they could fit in. That, that city is so congested. And everywhere you turn within a two block radius, there's an adventure. There's a story to be told. Um, and so we're down on this basement bar and we're catching up with him and we're, give, we're giving him the rules. And the rules were, were pretty simple. They were basic. It's like every bar you go to, you only have one drink. You know, we can get a snack from that bar, but we have a drink and we move on. We start with a list and then we'll ask the bartenders as we go where their favorite spots are. And generally what I like to do when I do a bar safari is I'll do it at the beginning of the week. So I'll do like a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday just because the places will be dead, you know, and you can get into these spots that are the coolest spots in the city, no problem. But also, the bartenders are usually pretty, like, dead and quiet. And they're usually working on stuff, testing drinks. So you get to sit there at the bar and really have great conversations with these people. Because at the end of the day, for us, it's not about getting, <laughs> it's not about getting drunk, man. You only have one drink per just to experience that ambiance, just to almost timestamp that place with flavor. Once again, back to that food thing. Almost timestamp that experience with flavor. Um, but at the end of the day, for me, it's more about talking to these folks, more about learning about the city. Where do they like to go? Like, how do they survive in the city? Like, how much do they pay for rent? You know? Oh, there's some police going on outside. Apparently, I live in the rough part of a uh, water town. <laughs> I'm not kidding either. We'll get into that in another episode. Mm. So we're sitting in this bar talking about the rules and this man interrupts us. He's sitting further down at the bar and he's dressed in like a sports jacket and he's got a fedora on and he's sort of all shoulders up leaning over this bar and minding his business and he turns really slowly and looks at us and he speaks with an old Tom Waits voice. And he says to us, sounds like you boys are on an adventure. And at this point, my interest is perked. <laughs> I mean, it's all part of the experience. You got to be ready to jump on these things. And I was like, yeah, man, we're uh, going to hit some bars. And he's like, let me see your list. And so we give him our list. And he goes, I'd, I'd, I'd like to give you my list of places to go. So, of course, we scrap the list of bars that we're going to. And he sits down and, and writes us out this list of places. And he goes, this is where I would go, start here, and move from here to here to here to here. And have fun. And so we left. Super excited because we had a whole new mission and we ended up finding a lot of really interesting underground bars. And we were going from place to place. Every spot we'd go, we'd have a beer. We ended up at like, even like, uh, I guess it's kind of a touristy spot these days, but McSorley's. I don't know if you guys have ever been there and I think I'm, I think I'm saying it right. It's like the oldest, one of the oldest bars in New York. And you go in there and there's still sand, there's still like um, wood dust. Uh, uh, on the floor and then they have like peanut shells and you go up to the bar and there's a guy <laughs> there's a guy there and he goes light or dark and there are two beers light or dark 
and he's got this bin system where it's like soapy water, less soapy water, less soapy water, clean, <laughs> clean bottles or clean uh, mugs. So you go slop, slop, slosh, and then fill it up. Really cool bar. So we went there, went to a couple other spots, and uh, I think the third bar in, uh, we arrive, sit at the bar, and who's sitting next to us? It's this Tom Waits guy. And he turns and looks to us and goes, I'd like to join you on your adventure. Of course, we're going to let him do that. And he was a little scary, you know? Like, when I say Tom Waits, I'm talking like, you know, when Tom Waits stars in... Uh, in those movies, and he's kind of the devil. <laughs> he's got this super deep, raspy voice. He moves really slow. Um, but he ended up joining up with us. It turns out the guy was like a retired writer for TV, which is also really weird. And he was telling us about all these uh, episodes of old television that he used to work on. I don't know. If, I, I think it was like Taxi or something. It was really, really cool. So we end up traveling with this guy, and now we're probably like six or seven bars in, you know, and we're talking in like a four-hour period. So time travel's happening. Like I, at this point, I'm I'm opening up the driver's side door to a DeLorean and getting inside. Let's just put it that way. And so uh, we we start drinking, and the and the my memories just blur. Everything just becomes a rainbow, like one of those rainbow elevators in Thor. Two women fucking a polar bear. Don't tell me those things. Not now, man. This is my last drink. How much money can you lend me? Not much. Why? I have to go. Go? Yeah. Leave the country. Oh, come down. Shit. You'll be straight in a few hours. Just sit, sit the fuck down. Oh, fuck Good. Around. I remember waking up hours later, waking up in this hot bar. And my eyes open, and sitting in front of me was a bowl of these goldfish. So I started eating these goldfish. And the, the place is pitch black. And I, if you've been to bars in New York, you know that they will light them with fucking candles. One of the coolest things, atmosphere-wise, about New York City bars is that they're pitch black. I mean, last time I went on a bar safari there, I had to, like, turn on my cell phone like, like an old man to make sure my fucking stool was there before I sat down. That's how dark it is in these places. I'm sitting there looking at this bowl of goldfish trying to get my bearings and this is chainsaw noise and I look up and in front of me in this tiny bar they're projecting on the wall in front of me the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and we're at that scene where he is uh, running after the girl and she jumps in the back of the pickup truck out of anger he's doing that beautiful dance with that chainsaw that mad dance favorite part of that movie and I devoured those goldfish so now when I see goldfish in the grocery store I think about the dude in the fedora I think about all the bars I went to in New York I think about Indiana Jones I think about the video store clerk I think about all the times I sat down with my friends and watched movies, and it's all because of goldfish. So, at the end of it all, why have I gone on and on spending all this time talking about food? Well, I've been promising you guys for a while that I would talk about inspirations. I wanted to give you an insight on how I come up with these ideas when I'm writing a script or outlining a treatment. Um, 
And they all say, like, the rule of thumb is that the best way to, to write anything good is to write about an experience that you've had or give a character traits based upon someone that you've met. But at my age, like I said, I'm turning 40, you know? At my age, I've had so many experiences and I've met so many people, and it's getting harder and harder to remember these things. Like, it's, yeah, the library's deep, <laughs> you know? And so, like, I, how, do I, how do I get access to this stuff, you know? And I'm sure a lot of you feel the same way. Like, how do I come up with a good idea? Like, if someone comes to you and says, all right, I need you to write something quick, or I need you to flush this character out really quick, or a client comes to you and says, um, you know, what is, like, what is your take on the vibe here? What is your take on the atmosphere here? And you're put on the spot. And that's one of the toughest spots when you're when you're writing to be in is when you're put on the spot and you have a deadline and your brain for some fucking reason just goes blank. You know? So if you're looking for a new idea, maybe what you do next time is you get downstairs, you open up the fridge, you look through your cabinets, and you make yourself a meal. Thanks for tuning in, guys. I uh, really appreciate all your support. Uh, remember, go follow uh, this podcast on Instagram at In Love With The Process Pod. That's In Love With The Process P O D. Uh, please go and follow it. Even if you just go and follow it, it helps. Uh, it helps me keep the sponsors happy. It helps me uh, keep you guys happy. And then it's also a good spot. Like, I usually post a lot of different. Uh, behind-the-scenes photos from productions that I'm inspired by. Uh, I post uh, behind-the-scenes videos on like how certain techniques are done that I think are really interesting. Um, and then I also interact with you folks there. So like, if you want to leave me a question up there, I'll answer that question on the next episode. So definitely go to In Love With The Process, P-O-D, at uh, Instagram. And you can also follow me, if you feel like it, at uh, Mike Petchy on Instagram as well. Um, one of our long-running sponsors for the show is my company, McFarland & Pesci. Go to McFarlandAndPesci.com to check out all the latest works from me and my business partner, Ian McFarland. Uh, the two of us have been doing music videos and uh, commercials uh, and uh, short films. And Ian is uh, wrapping up his new feature-length documentary on The Godfathers of Hardcore, which is uh, on Agnostic Front. So if you guys are fans of... Uh, old school hardcore music, you're going to love this piece. Um, so definitely go over to McFarlandandPesci.com, check out our stuff. Um, but thanks for listening, guys. Uh, and uh, I will see you on the next episode.